Our scripture lessons today, for those who will be listening later, come from Isaiah chapter 60, verses 1 through 9, Psalm 72, verses 1 through 17, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, and Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I'm not going to ask you if you have ever paid attention to your horoscope. Most people pay very little heed to astrology because we know it's false. The movement of the planets and stars does not dictate what happens to us based on the month of our birth. If one were to check his or her horoscope daily, it would soon become obvious that it's about as accurate as random results. Probably most people who read their horoscopes do so for entertainment purposes only. But as I said, horoscopes are as accurate as random results, which means on occasion, they are correct. Does that validate astrology? No, not at all. It simply means that every so often, anyone can be right. This is what happened in our gospel lesson today from Matthew chapter 2. The wise men followed an astrological sign that at least this once was totally accurate. And this fits into a much larger and more important theme that God does not discriminate. Matthew's record of Jesus' birth is remarkable beyond the bizarre nature of an immaculate conception and the birth of our Lord. Let's start with the wise men. These were men who studied the stars for signs of things happening on earth. Of course, we know the whole idea is bunk, but they didn't. In fact, they were apparently quite enthusiastic about the entire endeavor. And we don't really know what it is they saw. The Bible describes it from their perspective as a star, but it could have been a comet, a planetary alignment, or some other space phenomenon that we know today is not a star at all. I know astronomers have various theories as to what it was. When they saw whatever it was, they apparently consulted their charts from astrology.com and decided that a king had been born. And not just any king, but the king of the Jews. That's remarkably specific. But we're not even to the interesting part. They decided that this little group project of theirs wasn't done yet. Figuring out what the meaning was wasn't enough for them. They wanted to go see for themselves. We have no idea how long their journey took to Jerusalem, but it's safe to say it was time-consuming, possibly lasting months or more, very expensive, and not without some danger. Not only that, but they had to leave behind whatever families and responsibilities they had at home to pack everything and hit the road. And that's not even including the very expensive gifts they decided to bring. They must have been superbly confident in their astrological charts. Imagine making the trip only to find out they were wrong. As I said in my introduction, the fact that they weren't wrong doesn't validate astrology. What it does show is that God will sometimes use extraordinary means to accomplish his will. He can even use our ignorance. Imagine if these wise men had known that astrology was worthless, they wouldn't have been looking for a star, and they would never have known that the king of the Jews 
have been born. Isn't God amazing? Unfortunately, we don't know if they had any understanding of Yahweh or the Torah. There is a possibility that they knew quite a bit, since Daniel, Queen Esther, and other Jews had had a significant impact on Babylon just a few hundred years before. Did they think they were coming to see a mere king or the Messiah? They clearly knew very little of the state of Judaism at that time since they showed up at King Herod's palace looking for the baby. That would make sense most of the time, but Herod was simply a half-Jewish king whom the Romans had put in charge. The birth of Herod's son certainly wouldn't merit a star and a long trip. He didn't even know where the Messiah was to be born, but neither did the wise men. Their ignorance raises the question, why did they bother? They said in verse 2 that they have come to worship him. That can be confusing because the Greek word for worship can also be applied to honoring, such as what someone would do towards someone of high rank. So the fact that Matthew says they worshiped the baby does not necessarily mean that they recognized him as the son of God. However, the amount of effort they went to in order to pay him homage would argue in favor of them having some understanding that the baby was more than a regular run-of-the-mill king. They may have heard stories of the Jewish Messiah, and so this must be his star. But even then, most Jews didn't expect that the Messiah would be the Son of God, so we can't assume the wise men did either. It's an interesting question, but one that we can only speculate about. So what does their coming actually mean? In part, it could be a sign of the radical new direction the Yahweh religion was going to take under the ministry of the Messiah. The religion that had been the national religion of the Jews was going global. All were welcome in on, a wel on an equal footing. Samaritans, Sino-Phoenicians, Ethiopians, and even Romans. Under these circumstances, it's only appropriate that our Savior's birth would be marked by Gentiles. But it's far more than that. Not only did Gentiles come to see the King of the Jews, but they were led to it by God. As I said earlier, they were using an astrological system that was as good as rolling the dice. But God arranged it so that this time it was correct. This time they would learn of an impossible birth through impossible means and be the first Gentiles to honor the King of Kings. Epiphany is about the manifestation or revealing of Jesus as the Christ for the whole world. It wasn't a secret for those who were seeking him. You don't have to know a secret handshake or a password to get in. All are welcome. And even though the ministry of Jesus was primarily to the Jews as a special grace to God's chosen people, Jesus set in motion the expansion of the Yahweh faith beyond all borders. In fact, that was one of the things that made the Jews so angry with him. They no longer held the golden ticket. Everyone was elevated to their level before God. 
It's almost as if Jesus was removing the one thing that made them feel special throughout all generations. It's no surprise they didn't take to his message more readily. In fact, pagan Gentiles play several key roles in the story of Jesus' birth. It started with the census of Caesar Augustus, which we talked about at Christmas. The census was necessary to get Mary to Bethlehem. Next, we have the wise men who visited Mary from the east. They got Herod involved, who, though he had some Jewish blood, was very much a pagan. Finally, the Egyptians unknowingly protected Jesus from Herod's slaughter of the innocents. This was also foretold in Jeremiah 31:15. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are not. Rachel is connected with Bethlehem because she died near there. And Ramah is another town given to the tribe of Benjamin where Rachel's tomb was located. The involvement of Gentiles in the story of the Messiah's birth was always the plan. I mentioned that the Egyptians gave refuge to Jesus unknowingly. The truth is, all these Gentiles that played such a pivotal role in the messianic prophecy were largely ignorant of what was really going on. While it's nice to think that the wise men became believers in Christ through their experience, we don't really know. And the involvement of Gentiles continued throughout the life of Jesus. Matthew records the phrase, King of the Jews, four times in his gospel. All of them were from Gentiles. Starting with the wise men who asked Herod, where is he who has been born King of the Jews? Then, towards the end of Jesus' life, Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Soon after, the Roman soldiers mocked Jesus, saying, Hail, king of the Jews. Lastly was a sign placed on the cross that read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. I don't believe it's coincidence that the king of the Jews is a phrase that Matthew records only being used by Gentiles. What should have been a statement of praise was instead one of ignorance. And yet, there was truth in what they were saying, whether they recognized it or not. The track record of faith among the Gentiles seems to be no better or worse than that of the Jews. All struggled with the identity of Jesus. But again, that is what Epiphany is all about. All are included. All are brought to the table. All have the opportunity to come to faith in Christ, and therefore all have to come to terms with who he really is. It's easy for us to say God does not discriminate. We give our mental assent to that statement without question. The Jew-Gentile issues were resolved in the days of the apostolic church, right? Our actions often say otherwise. Do we look at the black church in America that sees things very differently than we do as equal brothers in Christ? Does it surprise you to know that there are a large number of Palestinian Christians who are suffering at the hands of the Israelis? What about the illegal immigration crisis at our southern border? 
Does it change how you think about it to know that many, if not most, of those who are coming to the U.S. are fellow believers in need? We may think that the first century Jews were ridiculous for looking down on everyone else, but aren't we guilty of the same? Do we think of Christianity as a Western or white religion? When you picture Jesus in your mind, does he have white skin and blue eyes? Christianity started in the Middle East and then thrived in Northern Africa while it was floundering in Europe. Today, history repeats itself as faith in Christ is flourishing in Africa and churches are dying in the U.S. and Europe. While we don't know what Jesus looked like, I can guarantee you he wasn't white. The truth is, we are but branches of a well-established tree. In fact, to look at the state of the church in America today, I would have to say that we are likely not the vital branch that we think we are. You may be wondering, why the change? Why have Israel, as God's chosen people for thousands of years, and then suddenly throw the doors of the church wide open? Of course, it's not really as drastic as all that. Yahweh used the plagues on Egypt not only as a means to free his people, but also to send a message to Pharaoh. In a sense, the plagues were an evangelistic campaign direct from God. Then, of course, we have Jonah going to the sworn enemy of Israel to preach repentance. There are also several stories of the interactions between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar, where Yahweh was reaching the heart of the Babylonian king, the most powerful person at that time. There are plenty of other instances of non-Israelites being reached by God in the Old Testament, not to mention that many prophecies about the nations being drawn to Israel through its faith. So God for the whole world was always the plan. Israel was simply the means. And isn't that such a better story than God loves only the Israelites? No matter how well he were to bless his chosen people, it could not possibly compare to having God open his arms wide to all people, regardless of race. Epiphany reminds us just how wonderful the birth of Jesus is. The Christmas story isn't finished yet. God's promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 18 and 22 that the nations will be blessed by his offspring is finally being fulfilled in the birth of our Savior. Not only does God not discriminate, but he does not fail. This promised blessing isn't over. It is still being fulfilled today. Through the working of the Holy Spirit, we are both recipients of the blessing and agents of its fulfillment. We aren't spectators or mere beneficiaries. God has given us a role to play in fulfilling his promise. That in itself is a tremendous blessing. While Epiphany could at first glance appear to be bad news for the Jewish people who lost their special position, it is really far better news for them and for the entire world. 
the Jews didn't fail. Their role in the promise was fulfilled by Jesus, followed by his disciples, and now the church. And now as we prepare to receive communion, we do so as those of a mere branch growing from a large tree with deep Jewish roots. No branch is cut off. All are welcome because God does not discriminate. He never has. The arrival of the wise men to worship at the feet of our Lord is a sign for us of the new direction of the Yahweh faith and the blessing it holds for all mankind. Let us rejoice that Christ is building a multicolored kingdom and he has chosen to give us a role to play. This communion meal unites us with believers around the world who look nothing like us and speak languages we don't understand, but whose hearts beat for the same Lord. As we receive this meal, may we open our hearts to love and respect all, just as Jesus has done for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.